Welcome to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I am your host, Donnie Mae. This is the monthly show focused on building conversations around the team-based model approach to athletic performance, strength and conditioning, sports medicine, sports science, mental health and wellness, and sports nutrition. Hello and welcome back to the Team Behind the Team podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Mabe, and man, oh man, it is summer in Austin, Texas, and we have got a great, great special guest that I know you will you will just love hearing from today. But before that, the most important person to me in the house today is our co-host, <laughs> Mike Hansen. Mike, what's up, baby? How's it going, Donnie? How are you enjoying the summer? You know... Coach, I don't want to jinx us, but we, we've kind of somewhat uh, reopened back up here in Austin. So not fully, but it feels somewhat normal. I don't know. That's kind of my perspective. How are you feeling about it so far? I've got a couple places where it seems to be fully back open, but um, obviously summer in Austin, to most people, is a pretty great place to be outside. Um, to me, I'm more of a before 8 a.m., after 8 p.m. guy, but... Well, good stuff. Well, uh, I know uh, the summers are definitely, it's already getting hot in Texas, very yeah, hot. Yeah, that's what I'm alluding to. It's too hot. Right, right. And uh, not not having AC in your car at five o'clock driving home in Austin is not a good thing. So it happens. No, sir. Anyway, Coach Hanson, you want to uh, do the special honors of uh, introducing our guest today on the podcast? It'd be great. Go kick us off. Absolutely. Um, we're, yeah, like you said, we're really lucky to be joined today by Sam Gardner, Senior Strength and Conditioning Coach for U.S. Paralympic Sport at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. Um, I was an intern for Sam and had the privilege to learn from him um, six years ago now, which is a little crazy to me. Uh, but he's an incredible guy, a very sharp coach, um, has gained a unique experience as a coach, um, and I'll let him speak more to that. So taking it from here, Sam, can you share with us your career path? highlighting kind of how you got started in strength and conditioning and then leading all the way up to your current position now with Team USA. Yeah, th- thank you both uh, for having me. Always excited to try to share the word about U.S. Paralympic sport. And Mike, I can't believe it's been six years, man. That, that flew by pretty quick. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was thinking about that like a half hour ago and I was like, dang, what have I been doing for six years? <laughs> and, and, and all the nice things you just said, you can, you know, the check will be in the mail and you can tell them how you really feel later <laughs> on. But uh yeah, so I mean, uh, uh, as far as my my journey, hopefully it's not too long winded because I've had the, the the good fortune of learning from so many great people uh, across the country, all the stops I've had. Uh, I grew up playing basketball, and you know, didn't make it too far into elite sport, but got to play small time hoops at a D three school in Massachusetts. And I always loved training in the off season. I also had a lot of knee injuries that wound up finding myself spending more time in the gym uh, than on the court, which wasn't the best for my my game, but kind of hooked me for my career. Um, I started off as a physical physical education major, which as I look back and kind of reflect on, I'm really grateful for because I had professors grading me weekly on various disciplines of pedagogy, such as session design, layout, communication, flow, cueing, lesson planning process. Uh, kind of then shifted uh, into more of a movement science focus. But along the way, I had some experiences that I look back on that really helped me work in parasport, which was... Uh, some unique experiences like teaching swing dance to an after-school elementary program of students with autism. Um, one of my first adaptive sessions, I had to teach uh, a, a young girl, junior high student, um, who was visually impaired and had severe autism, how to play ultimate frisbee. Um, so those those experiences were pretty unique to me, um, kind of really opening my eyes to, to coaching 
uh, as a whole. Uh, I realized I wanted to work in sport, and that's where my true passion was. So eventually, when I finished undergrad uh, with a degree in movement sciences, uh, I was fortunate to have a professor take me under a wing, allow me to work at her facility, and uh, I was hooked, hooked, line, and sinker. From there, I volunteered at the Velocity Sports Performance. Um, those were pretty popular at the time. This would have been 2008. Um, two weeks later, I actually got hired on as a full-time sport performance coach. And about a month after that, um, they didn't know any better, and they named me uh, the head sport performance coach. And two months later, I was actually the high-performance director of the whole facility. Uh, luckily, I knew enough to know what I didn't know and that I was extremely underprepared and underqualified to be running my own facility forever. And I had a thirst for knowledge, wanted to learn more. So I was able to start up a master's program at Bridgewater State University, uh, which at the time was one of the first programs in the country with a specific focus in the master's program on strength and conditioning for sport. Uh, there I was kind of mentored by Dr. Ellen Robinson. I was able to join her weightlifting club. And at 6'6", the only award everyone was probably tallest competitor. Um, but I was able to be a GA, a TA, and, and work in the sport performance facility in the evenings, uh, where I also volunteered as a strength and conditioning intern coach part-time at Harvard University. So I was kind of juggling five different jobs through my master's program. Uh, luckily, I was able to accept an intern role at the Colorado Springs Olympic Training Center in the uh, spring of 2010. So it was the first time I really left Massachusetts, uh, packed up the car and headed on out to Colorado Springs. Uh, I was lucky to, uh, at the end of that internship, I was lucky to transition out to Chula Vista, which Mike was referencing earlier. So I got to work at both uh, Olympic Training Centers as an intern all the way until the uh, Christmas break of 2010. Uh, I was even luckier as the USOC couldn't really get rid of me you know, they brought me back in a newly created fellowship role in January 2011, which was supposed to be a one-year contract. Uh, it's kind of like a, a bad virus that couldn't get rid of me, and I was able to stay on through the London Olympics. Apologize for that. Um, so after the London Olympics, you know, I'd had back and forth with Joe Wang at the Golden State Warriors during the lockout year, and he was uh, really trying to put together what was going to be one of the first high-performance programs professional sport in the U.S., um, so that was uh, obviously basketball being my passion. Um, you know, that was something I was very interested in. And after the London Olympics, I transitioned out to the Bay Area. Uh, I was able to take on uh, a lead role of athletic performance with the Santa Cruz Warriors of the D-League, which is now kind of the model every team has. But we were on a few affiliates that had our own sole affiliate within commuting distance. So I was able to shoot back and forth between the, the pro club and the, the, the D-League club at the time. And uh, be able to work as like a third assistant or third coach uh, with the NBA club, but kind of take lead with the, the D-League club. So it was a great learning opportunity for me. Unfortunately, at the end of the year, there was a lot of staff turnover. Um, and I was being um, recruited by the U.S. Um, Special Forces. And at the time, I thought that that was going to be the best place for me to uh, kind of settle some deep roots and, and grow as a coach. So in 2013, I moved down to San Diego, took a new role with the Marine Special Operations Command, first MSOB at Camp Pendleton. Uh, I was having an absolute blast. <laughs> took me a while to figure out what I was doing because it was so unique to any role I had before. It wasn't sport anymore. It was no longer a game. It was more of a more of a situation where we we're trying to help uh, elite soldiers go over to uh, battle and come back to their families. So it was a little more serious uh, to me than just sport. Um, but unfortunately. <laughs> At 2014, um, a lot of the contractors across the country got their names called and chopped, and uh, the government contract I was on wasn't actually funded for the past year. So uh, not the best situation. Great lesson in humility and patience as I was let go uh, from my contract in 2014. Jamie, who we both know and work with out in Chula, 
uh, called me up, said if I was interested, I could come volunteer um, at the Chula Vista Olympic Training Center where I'd worked a few years earlier. So I took that up as soon as I could. I was helping out with the athletics program down there, both on the Olympic side and Paralympic side. Uh, as I was interviewing for, for what was going to be next, um, I had some opportunities to get back in basketball in the collegiate setting. I was also offered my job back with uh, Marsoc, but I was just having such a great time working with the Paralympic athletes down there in Chula. And, and lo and behold, the USOC um, in 2014 decided to offer me a new role. They created a new position for me with a direct focus on U.S. Paralympic sport. So at the time, I was one of the first three members of our new initiative to create a high-performance program and support our U.S. Paralympians with the same level of care as we do our Olympians. At least that was the goal. Um, I worked in Chula Vista through the Rio Games. And then in 2018, I was brought back to Colorado Springs uh, to continue to grow our U.S. Paralympic strength and conditioning department. Uh, so now I'm fortunate to have some, some great coaches doing some exciting work in the para space as well as a full-time interdisciplinary staff that continues to basically multiply. Um, so we have full-time dietitians, sports psychologists, sport physiologists, uh, as well as leads in different various areas of sports medicine. Um, and I have Gustavo Osorio, who backfilled my role in Chula, who works with Paralympic track and field and quad tennis. We have Jared Sigmund here in Colorado Springs as an assistant strength and conditioning coach, and Tyler Courtney, a former intern of yours, uh, as a fellow strength and conditioning coach here. And Katie McCloskey, who does a great job working with our uh, women's, men's and women's wheelchair basketball programs. So, you know, it grew from just me working with Paralympic athletes out in Chula to in 2019, our last full competitive year before the pandemic. Uh, our group was providing regular SNC support, uh, about an average of 110 hours of hands on coaching per week to 110 national team athletes in 10 different sports. Uh, and those athletes went on to earn. Uh, 106 international medals in 2019 between Lima and World Championships. So it, it's been so exciting to, to see the growth and hopefully have had a, a small part of that uh, along the way. So that takes me to where I'm at now, back in Colorado Springs, um, still coaching, but have a little bit more of a manager hat as well and uh, kind of took on some new challenges in the educational area and do some guest lecturing as well at the University of, Te uh, University of Technology of Sydney's High Performance Sport Master's degree. That's awesome. Um, I picked up on a little theme there throughout your path, um, some of which which um, I was unaware of, but like when you were with Velocity Sport Performance and even now at the Olympic Training Center, how you kind of just stuck with it, kept finding places where you could add value and it kind of turned into um, a progressive or, or even a role that um, they've even created for you. So that's awesome. I'm sure that speaks to kind of the work you've done with those groups. And, and I'd like to, you know, tip my hat to the great people I got to work with because they were the ones hopefully um, advocating for me or creating the rule for me to try to keep doing what I was trying to do. So uh, without the good people I met along the way, uh, none of that would have happened on my own, that's for sure. Yeah. And then so we've said it a couple of times that you work pretty exclusively right now with U.S. Paralympic sport. Um, what what specific groups in the Paralympics um, do you work with? Like which sports, what type of athletes? Yeah, no, it's 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 varied over the years, which is really fun for me. I, I've everywhere I go, you know, you kind of get this label where I did a lot of work in track and field, and it's like, oh, you're a product development coach, or I worked in the NBA. It's uh, you're a, a basketball guy. Uh, now I work in Paralympics. You're a you're a para guy, right? So it's interesting. But currently, I, I directly support athletes who compete in road cycling, track cycling, triathlon, swimming, track, Nordic skiing, biathlon. And I still work with some Olympic athletes as well, specifically in triathlon. Um, but in the 10 summer seasons that I've been fortunate to support Team USA, 
Uh, I've worked with over 20 sports in one way or another. And, and currently, the collective staff that I help coordinate now, which to me is uh, so, so awesome. So it's not just trying to be a, a score first, do it on your own uh, one-man show anymore. I get to be kind of a pass-first point guard at some points. And, and we support paratrack and field, a uh, small cohort of uh, quad tennis athletes out in Chula. Uh, we have resident programs in Colorado Springs, a para-judo, para-shooting, para-swim, para-cycling, para-triathlon. And uh, we have other sports that use the training center for their selection camps. They might be decentralized, but they come to town for extended camps to select their team or do physical testing or to get some training blocks in, uh, such as wheelchair basketball, a pair of snowboard, alpine ski. Um, and then on top of that, Colorado Springs also becomes a bit of a centralized hub for a medical team. So part of my role is I get to work with athletes in various sports, either on pre or post operational work and return to performance protocols. That's awesome. I thought I thought that I had worked with just like a huge variety of sports compared to most. And then you start listing all these things off and it just takes it to a whole new level. Um, but even, yeah, talking about all of those para sports for our audience who's unfamiliar, what qualifies an athlete as a para athlete? Yeah, you know, so para athletes in the simplest terms, uh, these are athletes who have a physical impairment or intellectual impairment. Uh, Paralympians would be like would be athletes, excuse me, with disability who have competed on one of the world's lar largest stages. So like an Olympian competes at the Olympics, a Paralympian would be somebody who went off to the Paralympics and competed. Um, at the Paralympic Games, the main categories of impairments uh, that get broken down into classifications per sport are limb deficiency, short stature, visual impairment, Impaired muscle power or passive range of motion, hypertonia, ataxia, or athetosis, which is a mouthful, um, and intellectual impairment. So athletes would have one of those kind of broad spectrum, six areas of impairment that would then get subclassified based on their ability within their sport. Gotcha. Could you speak to um, some of those different classifications? So I know like you work with amputee athletes. I know you work, like you said, visually impaired athletes. Um different athletes who have spastic uh, paraplegia. What are the different classifications? Because I, I remember working with um, some of our visually impaired uh, track athletes down in Chula Vista, but that there are different levels of visual impairment. Um, so could you speak to some of the different classifications there? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. And it's an area that, you know, I've been involved in Olympic and Paralympic sport, like I said, for 10 different summer seasons when you add them up. And it's, it's very gray. It, it's not always black and white. And I don't envy uh, classifiers' jobs. It's, it's pretty difficult. But the idea of classifications, um, you know, it's to have Paralympic athletes that are placed in categories for competition based on their severity of their impairment. Yeah, it's not much different from the Olympic side where you might have athletes grouped by age, by gender, or by weight class. You know, the whole purpose of classification is to minimize the impact of impairment on sport performance, to try to create a level playing field. And the classification ideally is there to help um, keep a safe training environment. So you, you probably wouldn't want to see a bunch of visually impaired athletes running hurdles, for example. Right. So sure. um, you, you have to keep that in mind as well. It's not just about leveling the playing field, but it's also about the safety of the athletes, too. So within each sport. There's different ways that the classification system breaks down, and that can get pretty complex. But I think where you need to start is just to have a, a basic understanding of what classification is 
and why why it's there. And again, it's just to serve for uh, athlete safety, a level playing field, and to match athletes against other athletes who should have similar um, impairment profiles so that it's a level playing field. Awesome. Awesome. Mike, I, I want to jump in on a little questionnaire to kind of build on you. So real quick, Sam, just to add to what Mike's kind of been asking, like, what would you say the major similarities between coaching Paralympic athletes and Olympic athletes are? What would you say some similarities? Yeah, I mean, it's at the end of the day, you're working with people. And hopefully if you're being holistic, you're, you're putting the person first, uh, the athlete first. Um, you know, so if I work with an Olympic athlete or Paralympic athlete, there are, there are probably more similarities than there are differences, if I'm being honest. But areas that I think it's helped helped me personally um, you know, it, it really challenges your your creativity, your adaptability, uh, your planning. You know, in one session, you may have athletes training together as a group for the same sport, but you might have two athletes who have visual impairment, uh, one who has, let's say, above the knee unilateral amputation. Maybe one has bilateral below the knee amputation. Uh, maybe two are in wheelchairs. One athlete in the wheelchair might have complete torso control and one without. So, you know, how do you coordinate that? How do you plan that? How do you execute that, right? Um, your communication and teaching, let's take visual impairment or intellectual impairment. Those are two great examples. You know, how do you cue or teach an athlete who's never seen something to do a new skill or complex task? How do you teach somebody with an intellectual impairment? Um, how, how do you teach them a new complex task, right? Um, you know, so it can be unique in some ways to Olympic programs. Um, I also work with athletes as young as 14 and as old as 50. So you, you have that to consider as well. Um, and then, you know, I think all the qualities that the Paralympic athletes have forced me and challenged me to grow in, uh, I'm biased, but I personally feel that they would transfer to any other area that I would go on and coach in the future. Um, so I just think it's such a, an awesome area for a coach to kind of um, learn some lessons and, 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 and sharpen their axe. What a, I'm curious, do they enjoy coming in the weight room or not really? I, it's all over the map, coach, as you could imagine. I guess it, if I could flip that on you guys, I'd imagine maybe there's some athletes or some sports who historically the culture might not be super strong uh, as far as coming into the weight room per se. Um, I'm fortunate where I, I used to be, again, all these kind of labels, uh, a strength and power guy. You know, I worked in athletics. I worked with shot put and jumps and I worked with short sprints and I worked with bobsled and skeleton. And now I work with, you know, triathlon and, and, and distance swimmers. And I work with uh, Newark ski and biathlon. Um, but it was kind of crazy because for me, that was a big transition. I'm thinking, oh, these athletes aren't going to want to train. They're not going to want to uh, come in and get strong. And, you know, there might be some some cultural demands or, or backgrounds from the sports that kind of skew them away from strength and power training. But uh, I've had the exact opposite experience where some of these endurance athletes are, are now little mini meatheads uh, to the point where one of our postseason reviews, the, the triathletes, they went 10 days without working in the weight room with me before their biggest competition before COVID hit. And in their reflection, it, that was that was the area they said that they can't go 10 days without touching, um, you know, which is interesting. Yeah. And then, you know, in the Nordic skiing biathlon, it really started. We had one of their top athletes, you know, one of the greatest athletes we've ever had in Parasport um, come to town and she came for surgery. And, you know, they thought, well, you know, it'll be a miracle. She can get off to the season uh, next winter. And I got to work with her through the summer and spring. And luckily, our sports medicine, uh, Amber Donaldson, care provider, she 
she's an absolute boss and, and made sure that that particular athlete came out to Colorado Springs and we worked with her and she went off and, and won more medals than anyone had in U.S. history. So now Nordic skiing and biathlon thought, oh, well, we got this magic juju. We have to have everybody do it. So everybody had to come come train with Sam. And it was the same with, with Paratri. You know, I worked with the athletes out in uh, leading up to Rio and they identified great athletes to come out to that national team camp. I'm not trying to take any of the credit. But all the athletes I worked with happened to be the athletes who went on to medal. So then they thought I had some magic juju as well. So, you know, it just kind of spiraled from from one athlete's success to the whole program committing to it. Yeah, so you, you kind of hit a nerve right there with me. So a good friend of mine um, worked at a military base. He didn't work with Paralympic athletes, but he worked with uh, wounded or impaired soldiers. And I remember him talking about, like, so – you were talking about this magic juju. Well, part of, you got to think part of what you do that's a huge impact is like this belief in self and confidence and visualization that has to transform their life with this limitation they have, this impairment, right? Right. So you see, do you see any differences in like drive and motivation for like a normal, like Olympic athlete and a Paralympic? Is there any is there any differences or similar or what, what have you seen over the, the years? Yeah. I, you know, I think everywhere I go, I, I, I try to pride myself in, in developing trusting relationships uh, with athletes and with sport coaches and hopefully the support staff as well. Um, but I think, you know, special forces was such a unique place because it, it took a while for me to get those trusting relationships, probably longer than it took me anywhere in sport. If I'm being candid. Um, you know, if I could go back, there are things I would do differently. Um, but once you have that buy-in and that trust, those operators, man, they would do anything. They would do absolutely anything. Um, and I feel the same way about some of the para-athletes I work with. Uh, you know, if you're literally guiding an athlete through a weight room, through a session who can't see anything, and you're literally holding them and putting them into positions and, and you know, guiding their elbow, uh, it's a connection that you might not have uh, with an able-bodied athlete. And it's the same when I'm getting an athlete in and out of their wheelchair. I'm helping them with chair transfers on and off equipment or we're getting them into positions they can't get into on their own. Um, ideally, I try to make the athletes as uh, independent as possible and coach myself out of a job. But sometimes, depending on the impairment, you have to be a lot more hands-on than you would be with an able-bodied athlete. And they're putting a lot of trust in you when they allow you to do those things. Um, and, you know, I think... Parasport, there's a unique interplay within training age, biological age, but now you have to also consider the impairment age. You know, uh, some of it's congenital. Maybe they were born with that disability. Uh, maybe it was a late life experience. You know, did they grow up in sport uh, before they were uh, injured or became impaired? Did they have to relearn sport through adaptive sport? Did they not participate in sport, but now since uh, incurring a disability, it's an avenue for them to get their life back on track? Or maybe they were wounded in the line of battle. You know, I work with several uh, special forces operators who are now Paralympic athletes. Uh, it's not uncommon for me in one day of coaching to work with three Purple Heart recipients. Um, so that's kind of a really rewarding experience for me because these people have sacrificed so much for, for our country or, or for our freedom and for our rights that if I can help them get their life back on track or get them, uh, you know, uh, hopefully one step closer to their goals than maybe they would have without me. Um, you know, I, I can't really think of anything much more rewarding than that. Man, that's such an incredible variable, I guess, maybe we can call it, um, that you do experience in para sport versus, 
you know, I mean, obviously there may be other variations of that working in the collegiate setting, but like you're saying, if, if you're working with a 25 year old who spent the first 24 years of their life as what we would call an able-bodied athlete, and then maybe an accident happened, like I just can't imagine playing a role in them kind of maybe accepting their injury if, if that's something that does weigh on them um, and then just kind of guiding and working with them through that. Yeah. I mean, Coach Hanson, you, you're, you're one of the unique uh, coaches out there who've had the fortune or misfortune of having to come work with Jamie and I in, in Chula. Um, you know, I, part, of, part of my fun experience of working at the training center was having that intern program. And I was fortunate to hopefully play a small role in mentoring 27 different interns the last 10 years. And I, I really enjoy getting those young coaches out on the floor with para-athletes. And for you, I know we threw you right in the fire with, with Lex Gillette and David Brown, who are T11 category for, for anyone who's not uh, familiar, that's track and field 11, meaning they're completely visually impaired. So they can't see anything. Uh, and Lex, you know, he can long jump six, 6.77 meters and David Brown can run a 10, nine, two, a uh, hundred meter. Um, I'd love to hear maybe what that experience might've taught you or what you might've learned from it. And hopefully it was something, hopefully, I, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully we got you to learn something and walk away with some, some kind of impact there. <laughs> No, but um, to set the st- um, set the story straight, it was absolutely a fortune to work with both you and Jamie, and then also like you're listening, Lex Gillette and David Brown, um, which actually makes me think of a few funny stories um, <laughs> reflecting on that. But um, even like kind of the question I was I was asking is like, I remember we worked with a, I had the privilege to help you work with a quadriplegic tennis player down there. And I thinking back to what Donnie was saying with regards to motivation coming to the weight room and do some enjoy it, do some don't. And of course it's individual, but I remember for that quadriplegic tennis player that it seemed like it was always like a joy coming to the weight room, doing something, you know, outside of what probably most people think that that person could have done, um, which obviously brought challenges with regards to how you programmed for them. Um, I'm, I'm starting to get off tangent, but like thinking of, of, throwing me into the fire. I remember one day you were gone. It was maybe the second or third week. Working <laughs> with slacker. The, yeah. Leave, working leave with the, <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know if yeah. it was vacation or travel for, for work, but I remember yeah. um, this quadriplegic tennis player came in and was like, ah, you know, I don't know if I can do this exercise. And I was like, okay, now's my time to kind of make some edits on what this quadriplegic um, chair bound athlete can do. And so that's where kind of, I know the challenge and creativity um, and there's definitely a fun piece to it comes out with how can we accomplish, you know, this goal, whether it's a movement or what, yeah. um, with someone. Um, and I think a big part of that, I remember learning, uh, to answer your question, um, is just communicating with athletes and right. And so that's going to be a big similarity between regardless of who you're coaching is how much collaboration there has to be with the athlete themselves. Cause no one knows their bodies better than them. Oh, that's awesome. It, it's, it's music to my ears to hear you say that. Cause I'm biased. That's how I see it. But it's it's great to see other coaches kind of discover that and learn that. And, and I don't want to speak for you, but I hope when you went off to teach an athlete who can see or can use their limbs, uh, how to do a complex task, maybe it was maybe you learned something that you wouldn't have thought of before. Or maybe that process came easier to you. Yeah. And I'm going to I'm going to flip the script right back on you is how, how did working with visually impaired athletes um, like Alex Gillette, um, you know, maybe Lex is not the good example because Lex can do most exercises better than any athlete I've worked with. But <laughs> how does working with a visually impaired athlete changed your view with regards to how you cue, how you convey information, um, things like that? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, it's funny. It's pretty widely accepted, right? You know, uh, using external cues to teach a new task or complex movement to an athlete, uh, ideally a short movement or, or, or bursteful movement. Um, you know, you might want to make an analogy or use external cueing so the athlete can kind of then relate to it, right? But like a visually impaired athlete, they may not have seen anything in their life. So what analogy are you going to make, right, that they're right. going to grasp per se? And there, there are times where that works. There are times where that definitely works. But like sometimes you kind of have to throw the book out the window. Maybe for that athlete, an internal cue might actually be more effective because that's all they, that's all they really can kind of uh, lean into. Uh, that's not for every athlete, not for every visually impaired athlete. Some of them have seen and then lost their sight. Or maybe some of them can see a little bit. But for me, it's like, how, how can you teach? You're really just limited by your own coaching creativity and your own communication. So if you can teach a visually impaired athlete how to do a power clean, what, what is your excuse when you can work with somebody who can see? Right. Um, you know, if you can teach a visually impaired athlete how to do a, I don't know, box to box jump, uh, you know, what's your excuse when you're working with an athlete who, who can see? Um, you know, so I, for me, it just kind of takes the excuses out of uh, the equation sometimes. Uh, you know, I love I love teaching visually impaired athletes a complex movement or, or movement pattern or a new movement or new movement pattern. It's one of my favorite things to get to do on a regular basis. You know, something like plyometrics or skip progressions or bound progressions or weightlifting progressions. Um, I just love the challenge. It's been really fun for me. And I think the athletes love it too. I mean, you, you got to see it firsthand where – Instead of saying, oh, okay, now we're going to put you in a little bit of bubble wrap because you can't see, maybe it's safer to just do X, Y, Z. Um, you know, they, a lot of them really, really gravitate to the challenge. It's part of what they live with, you know, just going to do laundry on their own is a challenge. Um, so a lot of them gravitate to it and they want to be challenged. And I think sometimes a pair of sport, younger coaches or new coaches to it, we might kind of um, take the easier route because we're not sure what's going to happen or we're not sure what's best for the athlete or we're kind of hesitant or maybe even scared um, working with athletes with impairment but hopefully over time you can kind of uh, break through that and, and take the bubble wrap off and just go for it absolutely and then again kind of continuing to highlight just what you what you work with when you're coaching on the day-to-day -day is like when you, when you have an athlete with cerebral palsy um, how does that change your outlook with regards to um, like when you're looking for movement patterns or even trying to execute a certain movement um, before maybe they lose control at, you know, whatever point it may be, how has that challenged you in your day-to-day -day coaching? <laughs> you're, you're putting me on the hot spot because that's, that's probably <laughs> one of the trickier areas, right? So the whole yeah. impaired muscle power coordination area, whether it be TBI or, or, or athletes with cerebral palsy, it, it, it can be tricky. But with CP specifically, um, you know, you got to look at is it hypertonia, ataxia, or apoptosis? And then within that, you have athletes who present those different symptoms in hemiplegia, diplegia, or paraplegia. So right there, there's a myriad of possibilities or combinations that the athlete could present CP. And I think outside of just movement patterns, you need to consider the overall training load, um, you know, load management or load monitoring, such a, a big thing in today's um, industry or performance realm. But as an athlete with CP, you know, they can look very different walking into the weight room from session to session. It's not uncommon for an athlete who might use a cane or their crutches one day to show up in a wheelchair the next because they're completely fried. And that sucks. I mean, you just reduce their way of life. That you just reduce their the quality of living, right? So you gotta be real careful of what you do and when you do it. And ideally, like you mentioned earlier, speaking to the athletes, working with the athletes, learning from the athletes is probably a good place to start. 
you know, with CP specifically, it kind of hits three different main buckets to me. One being motor function, one being muscle recruitment, one being motor control. Within motor function, CP can affect mobility and balance. Within muscle recruitment, it can affect the ability to recruit and it can affect involuntary recruitment, which are two completely different things that can really uh, affect a set of training session, right? And then with motor control, you got to look at gait, movement and efficiency, as well as energy expenditure. If they're having spastic uh, responses, you're then potentially doubling or tripling the energy cost of what their demand was supposed to be. So you got to you got to take all that into consideration as you go go through that process. Absolutely. And I even remember again interning under you, um, you working with an athlete who had CP, and it, it was such a simple um, environmental change that you made. Um, but to me, it was like ingenious is you just set up a box. I, when this athlete was doing a squat, uh, right to the point on any given day where that athlete, you know, maybe just above where they started to lose control. And then I even remember some days it required a wedge. Other days it required maybe moving the weight above head, below head. Um, but just thinking that way, I remember kind of opened my eyes to how you can manipulate an environment, um, to kind of seek the outcome you're looking for. Yeah, no, uh, again, you're being too kind. And, and when you say, interned under me hopefully it was worked with us uh, hopefully <laughs> hopefully that's that was the experience <laughs> you had but but with that um yeah i mean like you said there, there's there's many ways it's going to count many many roads that lead to rome um i'm not i'm not big on every athlete has to do one specific movement like you mentioned hopefully you're chasing the outcome of what that session's uh you know specific uh, goal or focus was and if it was a squat pattern you know god forbid we use a, a heel edge one day or an overhead weighted implement another, but the athlete's still squatting. And at the end of the day, if that's what I feel is important for that specific athlete at that specific time, then as a coach, hopefully I have the creativity and flexibility to find a way to get the job done. Right. That's awesome. I have this quick question to, to kind of throw in for, for, uh, for you, Sam, let's listen to you and Mike. So years ago, I, you know, I played ball at Georgia. They, they did this story on this wrestler that was, I want to say, I can't remember the story exactly, Sam. I want to say he was, he didn't have any legs he, uh, just from birth, from genital defects or whatever, or being born. Um, so they the, the parents kind of did a piece in there where they raised this kid, where they treated him like he didn't have any impairments or restrictions or, you know, like he was just normal and that he would, I don't know. I've, I've read stories like that where parents raise their kids like that. But do you ever, working with Paralympic athletes, do they ever get offended or mad if you try to help them a certain way or no? Yeah, Coach. I mean, your wisdom shining through right now because there, there are a lot of unique um, elements that kind of go along with the, the social, social physical or social um, – Man, I need a little more rest here. The girl's keeping me up. But uh, the, the social aspect of interacting with the athletes with Paralympic sport uh, can be completely interesting because you might have athletes who were completely uh, bubble wrapped, uh, I guess, for, for a nice way of saying it, by their parents their whole life. And they want things handed to them. And I, that's not how I like to coach. Uh, I like to have athletes discover how to lead their own journey um, versus me telling them what to do all the time. And then you might have athletes who come in who are completely independent to the point where if you just do something simple as handing them a band, they might take offense to it. Um, and on top of that, you know, you, you might have athletes like, let's, let's go back to the visual impairment example. I've worked with athletes who are visually impaired who went to public school. I've also worked with athletes who are visually impaired who went to 
you know, the quote unquote blind schools and that they're going to have completely different mindsets just because of how they came up and how they came through schooling and how they were kind of either taught to, to get on and get, get along with it or, hey, we're going to find a way to kind of pave, pave the road a little bit for you. So and then with that, too, you might have an athlete who has a degenerative disease and maybe they were physically able to do, I don't know, a, a specific movement, let's say. But two or three years later, having worked with them neurologically, now they're not able to do that. But some of these athletes, man, hey, you know, I, I really need to do that because I was able to do that. Or I've worked with athletes who have had to relearn how to walk. And maybe walking is the most dangerous thing they do as far as the injury risk standpoint. But they had to relearn how to walk. Who am I to tell them that, hey, why are you coming in at night to walk around the track? It's a great way. You know, the way you walk, it's a great way to get hurt. Well, shoot, man, I didn't have to relearn how to walk. You know, that, that's, that's, that's something that they earned and that's something they don't want to lose. So there's a lot of different, um, <laughs> a lot of different aspects that go into play there. So that, that, was a, that was a great question. No, it's mind-boggling listening to you because I know, I know Coach Hanson can, can uh, relate and uh, empathize with me on this. It's like our athletes today in college, we see it get, they get so much provided for them. They're spoiled, and, but they're, so phys- they're healthy, and their, their perspective is so different. Whereas, you know, sometimes, I don't know, I feel like, that we, we do them a disservice because we pro- we're providing all this like performance team stuff, these services, but they don't really realize, you know, they always have the gratitude. And I'm not saying this for a blanket statement, but you see it with some different athletes. Sometimes that, um, they just don't realize really what they have. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's the same at the training centers, you know, we, we're, we're, we're nonprofit, but we do have a lot of toys and tools and we have a lot of, a lot of, a lot of great people here to work with. Um, right. I find that a lot of the younger practitioners, because I, I was completely guilty of it myself, I'm not trying to cast a stone, but you, you wanted to kind of do things for the athlete, set things up for the athlete, take away excuses for the athlete. But the longer I've been doing this, the more I want to do the exact opposite. You know, hopefully teach the athlete what to do because I'm not always going to be there. You know, I work with 10 different sports who compete all around the world. Uh, I want uh, One of my, my proudest moments of the coaching is knowing an athlete coming back from a trip and giving me kind of a, a debrief and saying, Hey, so I showed up at a facility. They didn't have this piece of equipment. So I did this instead. And I did it on this day of the week, heading into competition plus minus three. And I adjusted to plus minus two. And it's, they did that on their own because they learned from me, but I didn't have to do that for them. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like you're empowering them, right? You're equipping them so that they can, it's, it's that, it's that parable of, you prepare them for the road, not the road for them. That's, that's, that's spot on. And it's not, you know, when you first work with an athlete, you got to teach them how to fish. Um, but hopefully after a while, you just let them go fishing. Good. I like that. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transition topics here. And I know, Mike, I have some more here. But uh, just over the years of coaching uh, professional basketball, U.S. Special Forces, Olympic and Paralympic athletes for Team USA, how have you grown as a coach or more specifically in what ways have you changed as a coach, Sam? Yeah, great, great question again, uh, Coach Mabe. I, I've been, it, it's funny because these, these little chats force me to reflect and it's something we should do more often, but you get caught up. You know, I work with summer and winter sport. Next thing you know, it's two years later and you, 
might not have sat back and looked at all the awesome things that you, you were able to do, um, you know, through the opportunities you've been blessed with. Um, I, I've been so blessed as I feel every experience I've had has really helped me grow. I've had a lot of unique stops in my journey. Um, you know, I think I used to want everything to go according to plan. And now I try to roll the tide more. Uh, I think I used to want to drive athletes where now I want them to discover like we just talked about. Uh, I think I used to be outcome oriented. You know, it's great seeing these medals and podium stands, but now I, I, I try to be more process driven, right? You know, seeing an athlete get from step A to step B is, is more exciting to me than seeing them step up onto the podium sometimes. Uh, I, I think I used to want to be right instead of working towards what the best practical solution was. You know, sometimes being not right is what's best for everybody. Um, I also think early on, I wanted to be important. You know, I wanted to sound smart or come up with a new novel approach that would change the game, right? Now, now I could care less. I just, I just want to see the athletes live their dreams. And I find myself uh, more often than not, uh, I find that to enable that process to happen, uh, the simplest practical approach generally works best for me as a coach. Um, and I think I used to take too much pride in my personal work versus celebrating the athlete's work, which is, which is sad to say out loud, you know, um, I, ideally now I try to not take life too seriously, you know, no one makes it out alive. So hopefully have some fun with the process while you're at it. It's good stuff. I know, uh, I, I, you really definitely hit a struck a chord with me. You know, you, when you see your athletes have, whether it's an aha moment, or personal breakthrough uh, in their life from a performance they had or something in the weight room or, or even in a relationship or something that, that, that kind of you maybe spurred that on a little bit, uh, chipping away at a different area in their life. It just, it's so fulfilling and satisfying. So I definitely, I agree with you. Uh, yeah. yeah. You know, some of the proudest moments for me, you know, being invited to some of the athletes' weddings or, or having athletes come back to introduce me to their kids, um, you know, it that means a lot more to me now than it, than it would have when I was younger. Um, and one thing I might have skipped over on, too, for me now, it's the biggest challenge for me is not just coaching now, but coaching coaches. And Coach May, maybe you can relate to this more than I can because you've been doing it a lot longer, doing it well, um, something I'm still probably hopefully feeling forward on, but, you know, it wasn't easy for me to transition from a one-man show to a pass-first point guard. You know, it's a unique setup that we have. where We have staff across the country working with different sports in the power of space. Uh, we can't just pull up a chair in the office every Tuesday morning. You know, we're all over the world at different, different points. So finding creative solutions to that dynamic has been a, a kind of a fun learning process for me, to say the least. And, you know, I, I really do feel like it's on me to ensure that our group of SNC coaches that are working in parasport that we're connecting and ideally we're helping each other grow because, you know, if we're not, then we could all be trying to go out and learn on our own and learn the same topic. And we could be spending a lot of time turning over the same stone without ever collaborating. So that's hopefully this next quad, that's something I can really spend more time focusing on. Cause I think if we're going to continue to grow uh, in Paralympic sport in this country, I, I need to do a better job of coaching the coaches, not just coaching the athletes. Yeah, that, that's definitely a different, uh, like you said, that's a different challenge and skill when you're coaching uh, coaches that you, you're overseeing or working with. And that's definitely, a, there's an art to that too, so for sure. And it's not easy because you gotta, you got you to deal with, with problems. You know, I always, what about, I don't know if you've ever heard, you, you or Mike Hansen, coach, you've heard this parable of, you know, I always say every leader has two buckets, right? You carry two buckets in your hand at all times. One has water in it one has gasoline in it 
And when you handle problems, you either put a little water on it or you put, as a leader, you put a little gasoline on it, make it bigger. So I think that's the, to be able to, to solve problems and help people through challenges. I think that's a big part of what we do with our athletes, but also when you start overseeing other people. So that's a big piece of it for sure. Oh, that's awesome. That's terrific insight and something I probably needed to hear. So thanks for sharing that. Yes, sir. Uh, Coach Sancho, you got anything to add here uh, kind of as we get near the end? Um, yeah, just as we wind down, a um, couple of quicker questions um, just to kind of pick your brain, hear your opinion, Sam. Uh, but one is like, what qualities do you see, whether it's qualities that you've developed as a coach or qualities you've seen in other coaches that make coaches successful? Yeah, I, I, I think, the, uh, again, I've been super fortunate to be around some really high high-performing coaches. I uh, wouldn't like to put myself in that, that category, but some of the coaches I've worked with are. And um, I think a lot of them are, are generally patient. They're adaptable. Um, you know, uh, they, they don't force one system on everybody, but ideally find the right system for each individual. Um, yeah, I, I don't, you, you can look at something as simple as weightlifting or powerlifting and coaches have been super successful programming wise doing the exact opposite, but the qualities of those coaches, you know, ideally they help their athletes grow and pull the most out of them where other coaches might not be able to. So they're usually good communicators, good teachers. Uh, they're adaptable and, and generally I find that they're pretty patient. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's maybe becoming a cliche to some, but like I've, I'm just, I'm starting to learn or I have learned over the last few years that it, it's like truly not X's and O's. Like I've just seen too many examples now. It, it always comes back to who, like you said, communicates, conveys information, relates with athletes, you know, the, the best it seems like are the coaches who end up finding success. Because as yeah. you, yeah, as you pinpointed is that there's no right, like one way to do things. Um and so it just comes down to how well you can relate with people. Yeah. How, how boring would it be if there was only one right way to do it? You, know, <laughs> you show up every day and you do the same thing over and over and that's all you do for 30 or 40 years. You know, I, I, I enjoy kind of the, the uncertainty that that's, that's kind of involved with what we do. Um, and, and Mike, you know, you, you got to experience that with some of the greatest field coaches of all time. You know, if we can look at Arvanegas <laughs> and your time yeah. at Chula, and I don't know that any humans ever coached more athletes to throw over 22 meters in the shop with than Arv. And, and you saw how, how simple he went about things, you know, and Coach Cruz, who I worked with on the Paralympic side, you know, we'd, I'd come in with this big fancy spreadsheet and I want to account for every load and account for where every athlete's going to be at what week of the year. And he wrote stuff out in a napkin for me, right? And right. He did it well, though. He did it really well. And who's to say that, you know, spending 10 hours on a spreadsheet is more valuable than spending five minutes on a napkin. At the end of the day, it's how you execute it and how you connect. Right. I love that you brought that up because, uh, you know, coming on the heels of Olympic trials in the U.S. Um, with with Joe finishing second, uh, throwing it for, I can't remember, it was over 22 meters again. Um, but I was just telling our colleague, Clint Martin, who works with track and field here at Texas, um, it's like, I remember how simple that program was. And I've told him that a few times. I was like, it's crazy. Like at the end of the day, like, again, I kind of alluded to it is it's just comes down to how well you communicate with people and how you can gauge, you know, how they're feeling on different days. And it's not necessarily about what they're actually doing in the weight room. So, yeah. And, and how spoiled were we? I mean, leading up to, to Rio might've been a few months after your time, but you know, to have Ryan, 
to have Darrell and to have Joe, all three shot put yeah. representatives. And, um, you know, they all went about it slightly different. You know, Art was obviously working with Darrell and Joe at the same time. So there's just more similar than different. But, you know, how Ryan went about it was different than how Joe went about it. But hopefully they were both working the plan that was right for them. Absolutely. And we're, but I don't know if you put this together, but we're huge Ryan Krauser fans. I could here. imagine. I could imagine. You know, we, we had we had a few Longhorns come through over the years between uh, uh, the camps or between the resident programs. And, you know, uh, one thing I really stood out to me about a lot of the Texas athletes that came through, they were all very respectful. I remember Ryan's first time popping in the weight room asking if, uh, you know, his old training mate was around. And he came in and introduced himself and shook my hand and asked if, uh, if Miller was around. And, you know, it, I was like, man, like, you know, just stand up guy. And every time you train, he would make sure you put things right back where they belonged. And I know those were little things, but not, not every program teaches those little things. So, you know, it's, that's a, a credit to everybody down in Texas for, for sending on good people, not just good athletes to the, to where they go next. Awesome. Yeah. And then I guess my last question for you is, um, Kind of, I know, I know you have a long list and you're such a nice guy and I know you want to leave anyone out, but like who have been the influences, coaches or athletes in your career who have made a huge impact on you? Yeah, it, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's tough because you never want to miss anybody. Um, but, you know, obviously my parents to start off with, my dad was, was a great athlete, much better than I ever was and, and really kind of instilled a fun passion in sport for me, which, which led to everything I'm doing now. Um, you know, my high school basketball coach challenged me to be player coach, both my summer and spring leagues, junior and senior year. So he wouldn't even show up. He gave me the clipboard and I coached our high school team while playing. Um, you know, that was, that was pretty pivotal. You know, that kind of got me into coaching. He knew I was going to be a coach someday and, and that's where it kind of started. Um, you know, summer camps along the way, working at Dave Cowan's basketball school, getting the coach for itself. That was always fun. Getting to work in physical education taught me a lot of neat, unique things, um, but, you know, Dr. Ellen Robinson in my master's program, she was she was uh, just such a great influence, just a great person, great, great human, uh, great lecturer, great coach. Uh, at Colorado Springs, you know, uh, John Carlock, Rob Schwartz, Amanda Whitmire took a lot of time with me. Um, out in Chula, Jamie and Eric Lawson, who, who I still uh, lean on to this day. Um, you know, out, out in Golden State, Johan Wang, his his. His knowledge, I mean, it was next level. He was doing things that I look back on now that I'm not so sure a lot of NBA clubs are currently doing. Um, he, he, he was just a, a fantastic practitioner and, and a great leader. Um, my time in Special Forces, man, I learned from everybody. That was like getting an NBA in leadership just by hanging out with the people you're supposed to coach. Um, you know, they were they were just fantastic leaders and fantastic individuals. Um yeah, and, you know, then there's always those remote resources. You know, I've, I've been fortunate to listen to Donnie present multiple times. I went down to Texas' summit, I want to say, in 2016 or 2017, and he put on a great clinic, and I was able to learn there. And You know, I just feel like there's so many people who I don't interact with daily that have also had an influence on me positively. Uh, you know, I, I tend to gravitate towards the, the coaches and the practitioners who have a bit of gray hair. Um, you know, <laughs> Coach Lawson, uh Randy Wilbur, um, you know, they take a lot of time with me here at the USOPC. Also, you know, remotely, people like Vern Gambetta and Jimmy Radcliffe, Kelvin Giles, uh, you know, Coach Bonnerchuk, um, you know, stealing from coaches who, who have been doing it well and doing it for a while, uh, I think is important. Absolutely. So that's, that's awesome. That's definitely, a, yeah, definitely a resume 
that's a lot of people there. You've had some just quality uh, coaches, but quality individuals uh, around your life. So it shows. Um, as we get here at the end, I want to have one fun question for you, Sam. It's a little, little off screen. That <laughs> sounds good. But you mentioned it at the start, so we're going to finish it. Like, what's one Mike Hansen story you can you oh, feel no. comfortable sharing? Put <laughs> like, him on the hot seat right here. Mike, Mike Hansen, man. Uh, you know, uh, spike ball was big in Mike's life at the time. Um, that's one thing oh, yeah. that stuck out. You know, he was he was really into spike ball and. Poor Mike, I think he was kind enough to invite me to go play once or twice, but I was a little more focused on, on uh, keeping my fiance happy on the weekends at the time because I was gone so much during the week. On top of that, I remember one time Mike came walking in with a, uh, not while he was coaching because he was more professional than that, but during a training session early mornings before the athletes came, he was wearing a, uh, a, a tank top from Thailand of one of the beer companies in Thailand. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, called I, out, I called out the beer company and he was shocked. And I said, <laughs> well, shoot, man, my wife bought me the same one. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Mike, Mike was just, he, he was a sponge, but he right. knew what he was doing. You could tell he was going to go on and do great things. And one thing about Mike in the interview process that stuck out to me, because I believe I was the one who put him through the ringer back then. Um, you know, he worked with Mike and Bo up in Michigan, who obviously had ties to the Olympic Committee, but he also worked with Coach Dietz at, at Minnesota. And I've worked with right. a lot of coaches from both those programs. And I thought, wow, like two programs who have had a lot of success doing things completely different. This kid's probably going to have an open mind. And when he showed up, he didn't disappoint. He had an open mind and he had a, a creative way of thinking. So that that paid off for us. And he, he provided a lot of great hands-on, on-the-floor support while asking great questions along the way. Man, if I, if, yeah, if I could just add, um, man, did I fall forward lucking into the internship with regards to Michigan? Like I had no idea who their coaches were and I was just hoping they'd take me on and, um, kind of Minnesota as well. It just happens to be home for me. So, um, it's like you were saying earlier in this, in this interview is reflecting, which we should probably do more of is like at least once a year, I think like, man, did I get lucky to have those experiences <laughs> as well as working with you and Jamie. Um, and have you guys introduced me to those um, kind of track and field legends like Jim Radcliffe, you know, Coach Bonder, Chuck, Franz Bosch? So, yeah, I, you know, it, I think sometimes too, Mike, younger coaches, like they might have gone to Michigan or Minnesota to chase the logo and not the learning experience. And luckily for you, you didn't know any better. You went for the learning experience and uh, it, it paid off. You know, I think sometimes these unheard of coaches or small programs you know we were talking about jamie before we jumped on and some of the coaches who stay under the radar are, are as good as anyone you'll ever meet um and it's not always about the logo you know i'm fortunate i've got to work at some pretty uh, awesome places that other people might view as uh, you know elite settings or whatnot but for me you know it's it's the people that you get to meet along the way and hopefully where you go, you can learn the most and, and i've been fortunate as well to, to fall forward in some great situations so i can relate to that yeah, and real quick, I know we're, we're about to wrap up, but just to hit what Mike said earlier, and Sam, you you said it earlier in this this episode, but I've seen the the most successful coaches seem like the ones that come in and did what you did. Where can I add value to these athletes versus chasing a logo or a brand or position, and then end up getting creating value? The coaches see it, the athletes see it. It's it's and they put resources towards it in. And you kind of carve your own path. It's kind of, I don't know, it's a very 
inspiring story. So I appreciate you sharing that all today. That was huge. Well, thanks, Coach. I've, you know, it's it, it's been a humbling experience and a lot of lessons and patience along the way. But you know, one one kind of extremely humbling thing that's happened to me is everywhere I've worked, I've been I've been invited back, and uh, hopefully that means you, you left an impact in some way, form, or fashion that was positive. Because why would they want you back if they didn't? Um, so, uh, you know, with that, I've been handed some, some unique roles that I did not get in the field to pursue. I didn't get in the field, you know, 13 years ago and say, I want to be the Paralympic strength and conditioning coach for the USOPC. That didn't exist. Um, but hopefully if you get, you get handed a little rope, you can run with it and create whatever you want to create. And I've been fortunate where I've been, uh, you know, put in positions where I can, can create the job I want to have. Um, and that's, that's been, been awesome. Good stuff. Any, anything else there, uh, Coach Hanson, as we wrap up? Anything you want to add? No, I just want to acknowledge that um, we understand that you're a father of an eight-week-old daughter. And so we just, <laughs> you know, especially appreciate that you made time to, to talk with us today. And I know you're struggling to keep up on sleep, as most newly parents do. But um, just thanks again for carving out this time and being so willing. Hey, my, my, my pleasure. This was a unique experience because I think sometimes uh, podcasts or interviews in, in this day and age of the Internet, uh, you don't always know the person that well on the other end. Uh, poor Coach Maeve, he, he got stuck next to me on a uh, shuttle flight from Colorado Springs to Denver after a conference here in Colorado Springs. And I, that poor guy, he looked like he was probably ready for some rest after a long weekend of, of presenting and sharing. And I just I couldn't shut up and picked his brain the whole flight. And he was more than a gentleman the entire time. Uh, so, you know, a great, great person, not just a great coach. And then Mike, to know you personally and to have worked with, with you on the floor for months, um, you know, hopefully you can call me out <laughs> and say if anything <laughs> I just shared wasn't the truth, um, you know, versus somebody who I've never met might just be an internet friend, right? So, you know, this is, this has been fun. Awesome. Well, Sam, I'll, I'll definitely echo Mike. Uh, thank you so much for your time. We know it's precious and uh, for just sharing your experience, knowledge, expertise. I know the listeners will get a lot from this episode. So again, thank you. And and uh, that's it from uh, the team behind the team. So Sam, thanks so much again. Mike Hansen, you are the man. Appreciate you co-hosting. Yes, sir. And uh, hey, we will catch you guys next month on the Team Behind the Team podcast. We are out of here. This is uh, Donnie Mae, and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Team Behind the Team podcast. For future episodes, go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. We definitely want to keep having great guests on the show and great content. So if you have a moment, please go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, and let us know how we're doing. I'm Donnie Mabe, and thanks so much for tuning in.